All right, so last week, we looked at a passage that was probably the most important passage in all of the Old Testament, maybe the whole Bible, um, that, that talks about the sacrificial death of Jesus, that Jesus suffered for us, that he was crucified for our sins. Um, it's one of those monumental passages in the scriptures. And you got to ask yourself, okay, how does Isaiah follow up with that, right? It, it, it's as good as it gets. How does he follow up to that? Um, and, and the way that he does this is he begins to answer a couple of questions in for, for, uh, 54 and 55. The first question that we're going to look at today is, why does the death of Jesus matter? What, is, what difference does it make in our lives? And that's what we're going to explore today. And then next week, we'll look at chapter 55, which answers the question, essentially, how do we get in on this? How does this actually apply to my life? So, so it's sort of a progression. You see the, the thing that Jesus does for us. You see how that transforms us, and then you see how we can get in on this. And so that's where we're at. Um, and, and so chapter 54 is going to answer the question, why does any of this Stuff about Jesus as a suffering servant matter. And, and I think there's a clue that's given in chapter 53, verse 5, that says, with his wounds, we are healed. With his wounds, we are healed. He was wounded so that we would be healed. And, and I think that that's, that's what we begin to see Isaiah unpacking in the next chapter in 54 we see that the gospel of grace heals what's broken in us. And what he's going to do to show us that is he's going to give us three analogies, three word pictures of, of things that are broken and then transformed. The first is a, is a picture of a woman who's unable to have children, being able to have children. And the second is of a marriage that's been broken by unfaithfulness that's been restored. And then the third is of a city that's been destroyed, that's been rebuilt. So Isaiah's going to give us these three analogies, and they're, they're human analogies. They're, they're things that every one of us experiences on some level or another. We know the brokenness, but he uses the, the, the analogies of, of uh, childbearing, of marriage, and of civilization uh, to show us that really what Jesus does in us is he transforms everything. He turns the whole thing on its head and he restores what is broken to its rightful place. And he will ultimately do that, of course, when he's uh, with us, when he returns, right? The, the fullness of this is not going to be realized until we are with Jesus face to face. But there is, even here and now, a transforming work that Christ does in our lives through the gospel. So that's what we're going to look at. And I, I just want to take each of these in, in turn. And um, the first, we'll have the words up on the screen. In verse 1 through 3, we're seeing the first analogy. And, and here's what the, word, the, the passage says. It says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. 
Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. So in in Isaiah's culture, um, as in ours to some degree, um, the inability to have children would have been something that produced great shame and sorrow for a woman. Now, it's, it's devastating here and now in our culture when, when couples can't have children. We know that. I mean, all of us know people who are in that, that position. It's heartbreaking. We all, we all resonate with that. But in Isaiah's day, it was a very different thing. It was, a, it was absolutely devastating to not be able to have children. And yet what's shocking here is that we see the first word in verse 1 is sing. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Why in the world would a, would a woman who is unable to bear children sing and break forth into singing and cry aloud? What is he talking about? What is this about? Well, what he's reminding all of us of through this, he's not talking about physical birth He's talking about the spiritual birth that we have in Christ. He's he's telling us that we should be able to sing and shout for joy because Christ has produced life in us where there was no life. That Jesus has brought us into life with him. This is what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through 4 says, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were dead in our sin. And then verse 4 says, but God made us alive together with Christ. We've, we see that this life-giving gospel brings to us freedom from sorrow and gives us joy. And if you think about it, freedom in general always gives us joy. That's why we, when when. Wisconsin Supreme Court let us out. I about blew off fireworks in my living room, right? I mean, all, all you did. I, I mean, it was just like, this is the greatest day of my life. And I'm on, you know, I'm on Twitter talking about Wisconsin's freedom and, you know, ha, you Michiganders, you can't get out, you know, making fun of all those people, right? And that, because there is joy in freedom. There is joy in freedom. And, but here's the thing, freedom from sin and freedom from shame is far better than any earthly freedom we can experience and it's what our broken hearts long for more than anything. And so if we're about to light off fireworks because we can now get a haircut, how much more should we be shooting off fireworks and singing for joy because Christ has given us life and freedom in him? Real joy flows from our surprise and relief that someone else would be what we failed to be. That in ourselves, we are this barren woman in Isaiah. But we don't have to hang our heads in shame, right? We don't, we don't have to be ashamed of that. We can delight in our spiritual life and the family of God multiplying through the power that's not our own. That's what he's talking about in verse 2 when he says, Enlarge your tent. Basically, hey, make room for all the babies you're going to have and all the children that are going to fill your house, right? They lived in tents in those days. We, we don't. So it was easier for them to extend their, their place out. But basically, make your place bigger. 
because you're going to have so many children and grandchildren, you won't know what to do. And of course, he's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking of the family of God growing and, and, and you know, becoming larger and larger um, than, than we could ever imagine. And so that's, that's where we are. And here's the thing. We, we see that Jesus is the only one who can truly bring us the joy and the freedom that we need. And Jesus tells us how we can experience that. It's in John 15, among other places, but in John 15, um, I overshot here. Uh, He he talks about this analogy. I think we're going to start in verse, yeah, verse one. Um, He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." Let's see, where else are we? Okay, keep going here. I forgot what what verses I put up there. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now here's the key verse. These things I have spoken to you that that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So, So let's just break down that analogy, that parable, that word picture Jesus is using. He he uses a very obvious um analogy, that of vines and branches. Now, I know we don't live in wine country, so the grapevines maybe don't, that metaphor might not stick as clearly, but we all know how things grow. You don't have to be an expert in agriculture to know that if something is not attached to what gives it life, it dies, right? So if you cut off a branch from a tree or from anything and you just toss it to the side, it's going to wither and it's going to die, that's what happens. And what Jesus is saying is, is that he's the vine. He's the source of life and joy and peace that we need. And if we don't find ourselves attached to him in union and community with Jesus, we are not going to have the life that, or the joy or the peace or anything that we so desperately long for. So what Jesus is telling us is, is that he came that his joy might be ours and ours to the full. But he says if you are essentially what he's saying here is if you lack joy in your life, it's probably because you're not connected to the life-giving vine. But if we abide in him, he will work his joy in us. Now here's what's interesting is if we lack joy, what should be our, what should be our solution? Well, he tells us that... Um, if, if we, it says here, let me see, 
Uh, basically, if you, if you ask for anything, he will give it to you as long as you're abiding in Jesus. Right? He tells us to ask for what we lack. Now, he's not telling us we can just ask for whatever you know, Mercedes we want or whatever. He's saying, if, we're, if you are in communion with me, what you ask for will be rooted in what I want for you, and I'm going to give that to you. And so if you lack joy, Jesus tells you to ask for joy and expect him to actually give that to you. So, so we're seeing in this, in this passage, as we get into Isaiah, we're seeing that sorrow turns to joy in the gospel. What Jesus did as he was wounded for our healing was he brings everything around and he turns it for our good and he can remove our sorrow so that we are filled with joy. All right, well, let's keep going. Let's go back to 54 verse 4. Uh, 4 through 10, we'll read these. It says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth that when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Okay, second analogy, right? Analogy number one, pretty clear. Women can't, can't have babies, is going to have lots and lots of babies. God is turning the script. Analogy number two, the woman who was deserted has now been brought in and, and redeemed and, re, and brought back into right relationship. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that in the gospel, when Jesus' wounds heal us, what that means is that condemnation or rejection is turned into acceptance. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what the Lord is telling us in this. He, he's telling us that um, we are like this, this marriage that's been broken. There's a, there's a divide between this husband and wife, but, but what God is saying is, is I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to gather you back to me. Yes, there was a moment where his anger was upon us, but that anger is removed. Why? Because Jesus received the anger that we deserved. And so he says here in verse 9, um, he says, Just like in the days of Noah, when he flooded the earth, and he promised at the end of that, when, when, John, when Noah rather got off the boat, and he, he was given this promise, I'm never going to flood the earth again. I'm never going to do this again. This is the promise. And so, so just like that, God says, So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. In Jesus, God is not mad at you. Isn't that amazing? 
We think God is mad at us a lot, don't we? But in Jesus, he's not angry with you. Why? Because the Son of God received the anger of God on our behalf. But I think, we, I think our hearts struggle a ton to, to wrestle with this and to uh, really believe it. Because I think we all have felt some degree of insecurity about ourselves. And the reason we feel insecure about ourselves is because we've all faced rejection of some kind. Whether that's the kid on the playground who makes fun of you for your clothes or whether that be your boss who tells you you're not doing a good job and you've got to be replaced or whether that's a relationship that went awry. Right? We've all faced rejection. And, and I think sometimes we, we've, we sort of impose upon God the feelings of other people. We think that because we couldn't live up to our own dad's expectations, that God must not be pleased with us either. And if God's a father, then he must be like my father or your father, right? Well, my father is a good dad, but he's not perfect. And your father may be a good dad too, but he wasn't perfect. But the father in heaven is perfect. He doesn't hold us to the same standards, right? Maybe we feel like we can't ever do enough to make our spouse happy with us. Maybe we feel like we can't ever do enough to make our kids respect us. Whatever it is, we, we can't be putting all of that onto God because God does not reject us in Jesus. He does not condemn us. He died to bring us back to him. We see this really illustrated beautifully in the life of Jesus in John chapter 8. Um, this is just a little, a short story about um, Jesus interacting with a woman who had been caught in adultery. And he says, they each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this was to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, so this is a bizarre story. I mean, it's like, we don't even, I don't fully get how this happened, but basically, the Pharisees somehow were like peeping toms or something, staring, you know, found out this woman was committing adultery. Actually, some commentators think they may have planted this and put a guy in that position. Notice they don't bring the guy out to be killed, okay? Notice that, Um, probably because it was one of them. It makes you sick. It really does. But Jesus comes into the situation and 
they're trying to get him to say something, trip up. And, and he just goes, all right, if, you, if you've never sinned, go ahead and execute this woman's life. And of course, no one can say they've never sinned. So they all walk away. And then Jesus tells this woman, I'm not going to condemn you either. See, it doesn't matter how badly we sin. Christ pays for our sins, the worst of them, every one of them, from the little white lies to the, to the most heinous of sins. If we give them to Jesus, if we confess them to him, he takes them and he pays for them. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's the second analogy. We see, first, sorrow turned to joy. Second, rejection is turned into acceptance. And then third, we're going to see an analogy of a, of a city destroyed and then rebuilt. Let's look at verse 11 through 17. It says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come near to you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fires of the coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So this is a picture of a city that was destroyed, whether that be by military conquering or whether that be by natural disaster, we don't know. It says storm-tossed, so let's go with natural disaster, okay? Um, and this city's just broken to the ground. What does God promise his people? He says, to you who are afflicted, storm-tossed, and not comforted, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rebuild your city, and I'm going to build it better than it was before. I'm going to set your stones in antimony, your foundation with sapphire. Basically, he's late naming all of these precious jewels, and he's saying that's what your city is going to be built with, not with common stones, but with jewels and with, with beautiful, precious things. And all of your children in that city will be taught and will be safe and secure and have their needs met. There won't be any strife in the city that God builds for us. And any weapon that is fashioned against us will not succeed against us. So what is Isaiah saying? He's telling us that in the gospel, danger turns to safety. We were all in danger of, of judgment, of wrath, of hell. But not anymore. Not in Jesus. In Jesus, we are safe and secure. It's great news. 
And this is demonstrated, I, I think, beautifully in the Apostle Paul's parting words in 2 Timothy 4, uh, 9 through 18. And this is 2 Timothy. This is a passage I've brought you guys to uh, on other occasions as well, but um, it really fits with what Isaiah's talking about. This is, this is one of the, the, the letters that Paul wrote from prison. In fact, it's likely the, the last letter he wrote before his execution, um, if not entirely, at least the ones that, of the ones that we have in the scriptures. Uh, and, and he is in prison awaiting trial and ultimately awaiting his execution. And look at what he says. Um, we're going to actually, yeah, 16, I'm sorry. We're going to pick it up in 16. He says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. What he's saying there is this. He's saying at his first court appearance, he was a Roman citizen, so he couldn't just be killed. He had to go through the court system like, like we would as American citizens as well. He had protections in place, and so he had multiple hearings and court dates, and he went to his first, and he says, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. All of his friends did not show up. Nobody came to his side. But he's not bitter about that, because listen to what he says. He says, may it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me. And strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. In other words, he says, I wasn't delivered over to death at that first hearing because the Lord stood by me, protected me. And he says this in verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now this story is heartbreaking on, in one, on one level because abandonment by other believers should never be a person's experience. Sadly, it is too often. But what, what we're reminded of is that by the wounds of Jesus, we are healed and we will be eternally healed. We will be delivered into safety. We will be brought safely into the kingdom of God. And Paul is looking down the, the face of death. He knows he's going to die. He just knows he got a stay of execution on this first one, but it's a matter of time before he's delivered over to death. And yet it does not shake his faith. It does not rattle him at all. He's going, you know what? No matter what happens, Jesus is going to bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. We see in the gospel that the danger our souls faced, the ultimate danger we faced, has been turned into safety. Can our bodies be destroyed? Yes. But our souls will be safe and secure eternally in Christ. So we're, we're looking at how this all works, right? We're looking at how the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his suffering, we're healed. How does that change us? And we're seeing it in this way, that sorrow turns to joy, Condemnation turns to acceptance and danger turns to safety. But here's the question. What happens if we don't actually feel that? What happens if our Christian life does not seem very joyful or we really struggle to believe we're secure 
or we really doubt whether we're safe in Christ. What do we do? Well, I want to I remind you of something that we've, we've been talking about for a long time, and it's this, that, that growth in Christ is a community project. It's not a solo project. We need each other. We need each other to, to encourage one another in the gospel. We need other people to speak truth into our lives we, we need to be people that are committed to helping one another grow. And, you know, I, I think the, the church is, unfortunately, has a bad reputation for being one of the only organizations on earth that shoots its wounded. But don't we? Somebody comes and confesses something, and what is the response? It's basically, get out. We don't want you here. When really, if the person is confessing sin and coming into a, a place of vulnerability and admitting that they've done wrong and that they, they want to change, why in the world would we shoot them and say, well, go find somewhere else to be? The reason that we do that is because we don't really believe the gospel deep down. We don't really believe that Jesus has accepted us and has paid every, for every sin we don't really believe that we're safe and secure in him. And so we need to recognize that we've got to see this as a community project. And the, the passage that really demonstrates this is James chapter 5, verse uh, 13 through 16. Um, it says this. Well, actually, um, yeah, we'll start in 13. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, here's the key verse. In verse 16, it says, Therefore, Confess your sins to one another that, and, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See what the scriptures call us to? It calls us to something really scary. Confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. This is a two-way street, right? There's confession of sin, and there's prayer that meets that sin. Then when that person who's doing the praying sins, he gets to confess and she gets to pray for him, right? That's how it works. It's a two-way street. There is confession and there's prayer, and that is really scary. And you know why it's scary? It's because we don't really believe that we're safe in Jesus. If I am safe and secure in Jesus, then why do I have to be afraid of admitting I've done something wrong? It's, it's, again, it's not something that overnight we're going to turn the switch and just suddenly start living in this way. It's, it's got to be built. It's got to be gradually experienced in a safe way in our culture as we create a culture of safety and gospel and, and time. We need, we need to see all of these things come together 
for people to be willing to change. We want to have a church where people have the gospel taught to them in all avenues, right? Not just here when I'm teaching from up front, but in all of our interactions and in all of our conversations, the gospel should be, be brought to bear and going, hey, you know, Jesus says, the gospel says, right? We need to encourage people with the truth. We also need to give them a place where they don't have to be afraid of rejection. And we need to give people lots of time because time is key. We don't change overnight. Nobody improves overnight. It's a gradual thing. But if we put this equation together, gospel plus safety plus time, we'll see people change. And I just want to encourage you, the gospel is a very right here, right now applicable truth. The things we've looked at apply to your life right now, but sometimes it's hard to believe it. And so we need each other to help each other. We need to be willing to walk through these things together and live life in community. So that's what I hope to see, and that's what we've been trying to build as time has gone on here. Um, But we just want to continue to put that in front of you because that's what makes a church a dynamic, life-giving place rather than a, oh, this is another place I got to go on Sunday to be judged by everybody. We want it to be life-giving and joyful because that's what Jesus came to do for us in part. So with that said, let me pray for us and then we'll have um, some time for you guys to partake of the Lord's table and sing and, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Father, we thank you for your grace and we give you all the praise that you have turned our sorrow to joy, that you have taken our condemnation upon yourself and accepted us and have not condemned us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a clarity of that and of the truths that we've seen of our eternal security in you as well. We pray that the culture of our church would grow in this way and that we would encourage each other with these words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.